Nothing else. So when you be appear before him on the day of Kiyama, it's not going to do any good to say, yeah, but like, you know, you should have seen me catch a cricket ball. That's not going to do anything. Allah is going to ask you, when did you remember me? And when did you forget me? And that's going to be the measure. When did you forget Allah Ta'ala? And when did you remember him? Alhamdulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to Business Matters with me, your host, Alameen Templeton. On this beautiful, lovely day of Yom Al-Ithneen. That's Monday. Yom Al-Ithneen. Monday. Yes. Alhamdulillah. If you want to call us on the show, if you've got something you want to share with us, our telephone number here is 10 Or you can uh, WhatsApp us your messages if you want. Our WhatsApp number is 84 786 well, it's been a bit of a day. <clears throat> uh, we've had uh, the all shares. It's up 1.3%. That's not bad. The JAC top 40 is up 1.42%. That's also not bad. A 1% one, a 1 plus gain. Yeah, that's pretty good on the JAC nowadays. Usually it's kind of like almost flatlining. It's a, it's a, it's a bit like um, an ESCOM power station. You know, there's a, there's a lot of activity, but not much going on. All right, okay, so the all share index today is 56,769 rands 86. The top 40 is on 50,388.59. Uh, the, the all share up 1.3% and the top 40 up 1.42. The rand dollar exchange rate, it's uh, 14 rand 44 to the dollar, 19 rand 05 to the pound, and 16 rand 36 to the euro. So uh, on a daily basis, we gain slightly against the pound. The pound taking a bit of a hammering uh, over Brexit concerns. And <laughs> no one's happy with Brexit, including the Brexiteers, because no one seems to support them. And everyone knows it's a crazy idea. Britain gain alone. Shame. <clears throat> I'd love to see that, actually. Please, please vote for Brexit. Vote for Brexit. Leave the European Union. Show the world. Show the world. Come on. In fact, more importantly, show yourselves who you are. Leave the European Union. Britain, go it alone. Go for it. Go for it. Yeah, well, you know, there's a, as a, it's the Irishman in me. Or is it the Scottishman in me? I don't know. Uh, well, you know, I, I think it's the Irishman in me that uh, is very happy with Brexit because, um, well, now, you know, there's, it's all coming down to that Northern Ireland border, isn't it? Ulster. Yeah, the Londonderry counties as the British like to call them, Assassinachs, as they like to call them, the Londonderry, the Londonderry counties. Yeah, Britain uh, wanted to create a little 
a little uh, source of instability, you know, in the midst of beauty and love. A bit like Israel in Arabia. Yeah, it's an old British tactic, divide and rule. Uh, Indians very well aware of that thing. I was I was just reading some more histories on, uh, well, in actual fact, it was an old um, Reader's Digest Encyclopedia. Uh, in fact, it's a very, it's like about uh, 20 volumes. And is it... Um, no, no, I don't think it's the Reader's Digest. Another one, you know, they're those big, I hear about 20 volumes of those books that they used to sell in the use of encyclopedia salesmen going around from door to door in the old days. Well, I don't know, it never happened in South Africa. It was a big thing in in America. But, uh, yeah, in the, in the 70s and the 60s, 70s and 80s, you know, like every family had to have like a huge, big volume of Encyclopedia Botanica or Reader's Digest uh, you know, whole volumes about knowledge about the world. I used to love them when I was young. I used to read them a lot. Uh, you know, as a little kid, you know, I could hardly read. And uh, I was into my encyclopedia. It was great. I mean, you can read and read and read and read and you never come to the end of it. <laughs> uh, I saw, well, I was reading the British Empire. Mm. Yeah, you know, I've, I've said before, the British, how did the British take over India? With gossip. They took over India with gossip. They didn't actually really have to fight among and fight with anyone. They just got the Indian Rajas and the Indian Mughals and the Indian kings and the Indian emperors to go and fight against each other. And then they'd go in and they'd mediate, you see, like Indian does in England does nowadays all over the world. They actually mediate in conflicts. You must understand something. In uh, Africa, peacemaker in actual fact means kingmaker. That's why the French don't want the United, the Arab, African Union forces up uh, in Chad, and in the in the Western Sahel, and in Darfur, and in Niger, and in Mali. Doesn't want uh, doesn't want African Union troops there because peacemaker is kingmaker in Africa, and France likes to be the kingmaker in all of its. I'm sure the French don't even like to call them former colonies. They they still are really de facto colonies in many ways. Uh, Chad, for instance, has a pipeline going through Mali through the west shoulder of Africa up into Spain and France. Um, and uh, and you see, that's a major problem with Darfur and Libya, Muammar Gaddafi's country. It was in the way <clears throat> of the pipelines. Instead of the pipelines in Africa, go directly north up into Europe. They have to take a long route all the way around the bulge of Africa till they come out in uh, through Mauritania and Morocco, and they come out there, right there, you know, close to the the Gibraltar, where Gibraltar is just about to touch on Africa. Yeah, they've got huge big pipelines going all the way around there. I was I was having a look at maps today. You really, you know, you should do yourself a favor. If you actually want to understand world history, and most importantly, if you want to understand the role of Arabia, the role of India, the role of uh, the Far East Asian economies, China, you want to understand that, you've got to get a map. You've got to get a map. Anytime you want to go and read up history, you have to have a map. Uh, you see, the two most important things about Arabia is that Arabia is straddled by the juggler and the carotid arteries of Europe, the trade, the trade arteries, the Red Sea artery and uh, the Gulf of Hormuz artery there between Iran and Saudi Arabia, Iran. Yeah, 
that, that, that waterway there leading up to the Euphrates. Euphrates River goes all the way up, up into, where does it come out to the most troubled country at the moment? Syria. Yeah, it comes out in Syria. And uh, that's why Syria has always been a major trading uh, center. Uh, because a lot of the spices, a lot of the goods from the Far East, from India, all of these things were vital because you didn't have fridges in the old days. So you had to, the only way to preserve your food was by getting spices. And the only place you got spices from was those other countries. Then who was in the way? Yep, guess who. And uh, the other side of Saudi Arabia is, well, I don't like to call it Saudi Arabia. I prefer Arabia. On the other side of Arabia, you have the Red Sea. I don't like to call it Iran either. I don't believe in Iran. I don't believe in Saudi Arabia. I don't believe in Israel. I don't believe in Lebanon. I don't believe in Jordan. I don't believe in Syria. I don't believe in Egypt either. I don't know. Maybe Egyptians will have to find a different name for themselves. That's the embarrassment of the, of the uh, Egyptian spring CC back in power. Can you believe it? Yeah. Um, you know, we need to get rid of Churchill's borders. All of those borders, they were drawn by Winston Churchill. Well, not by him. Per well, he oversaw everything, you see. Um, although people like to speak, you know, you go and study history. Uh, no, but what, what's this got to do with business? Well, you see, it's got to do with business because uh, Britain... Uh, won the Battle of Trafalgar in uh, 1805, and as a result ruled the world's uh, trade routes for the next 200 years. Yeah, um, uh, it, it ruled the world for the next 200 years up until the great, the first great oil war. And what was the first great oil war? It was the First World War. Yeah, did you know that? The First World War was in actual fact the world's first oil war. You see, what happened was... Um, uh, Britain ruled the waves with the biggest navy um, after the naval battle at the Battle of Trafalgar in 1805. It established itself as the dominant naval sea power. And as such, it was able then to exert its will and influence on any country anywhere in the world. Without Britain being in your favor, you couldn't really do trade properly. Uh, and, then, and that was the reason why uh, French, American, Russian... Uh, warships accompanied British warships up the Yangtze River in 1901 and shall the uh, Eternal City the home of the Emperor did you know that the Eternal City was in fact um, based on a Mongol plan for the Mongol capital city when they took over China uh, Mongols were largely Muslim uh, so yeah the Eternal City's whole design is based on could we say a Muslim design? I don't know if any of you read that book, 1421. Fantastic, huh? Really interesting stuff. But are the Chinese, huge, enormous Chinese junk, the side of modern oil tankers, sailed all over the world, um, spreading the word about the Chinese empire and inviting their leaders to come and visit the emperor. All around the world. You see, they've got, to, they've got specific star readings, the reading of a location of a specific star. You see, <clears throat> the heavens are covered with stars, and the only way that you're able to tell exactly where that star is is to be directly underneath it. And the only way you can give the exact location of a star in those days was to be directly underneath it. And they've got the polar star and all kinds of stars in the Arctic Circle and the Antarctic Circle. But anyway, Arabia, Arabia's main problem isn't its oil. Arabia's main problem is the fact that it is straddled by the carotid and... Um, jugglers of European trade routes. 
That's where Europe's trade comes. That's where Europe's oil, more importantly, comes. And uh, all kinds of goodies come to Europe through those two routes. And as a result of that, the Muslims are in trouble. <sighs> well, okay, well, that's a, ra a rather unorthodox introduction to today's show, I must admit. Let's, let's uh, revert to traditional orthodoxy and have a look at what's happening on the JSE today. Uh, the most watched shares on the JSE today, well, you've heard of them all before. I mean, they just stay up there. I don't know. I kind of wonder if like, the investor relations guys of these companies actually pay to have their shares put up there. No, no, I, don't, I doubt they do because these are usually the rotten, the rotten apples of the JSE. I don't know what Sabanya would think about being included in, there in that, but, uh, well, there you go. Uh, Steinhoff uh, is the the most viewed share on the JSE again today. That's after Steinhoff on Friday, and I'm sorry to say I'm rather embarrassed. I missed that Steinhoff announcement. It's a classic. It's a classic move, you see. Every business journalist is supposed to go and have a look on a Friday afternoon, uh, late afternoon, after the market is closed at 5 o'clock. You're supposed to go to the JEC sends and have a look and see if there's been any sneaky sends announcements that have been released. Uh, ESCOM released uh, its announcement on a Friday that it had been upgraded by Standard & Poor's. And the whole of the financial media missed that one. We got it on our show, fortunately. But I must confess that on Friday, I didn't go and check the sends announcements after 5 p.m. And so I missed the announcement that Steinhoff had uh, read its uh, PwC report into the crooked dealings of its former board um, and uh, had, had released a whole lot of trite comments on, on, on that report. Given a lot of information, I'll be reading, I'll be getting into it a little bit later in the show. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, so as a result, I missed that on Friday and I should have, I should have seen that, so I, I apologize to you for that. Uh, second most watched share today is Aveng. It's on two cents. Yeah, it used to be a huge big construction group. Now it's on two cents. Uh, it's got battling all kinds of debts, and look as though it's, uh, it's two, two seconds short of gain and uh, disappearing beneath the waters forever. Aspen is on 97 rands 38. Uh, also, for worried uh, shareholders, Aspen's got a huge, big bunch of debt that it's got in the books, and uh, it doesn't seem as though its board has come up with a credible plan to get rid of it. Uh, Sibanya on 15 Rand 27, it's up 0.9% on the day, uh, so it's not doing too badly. Uh, yeah, we've done the currencies. Who are the biggest winners today? Breit is the biggest winner today. It's up 5.28%. Sogos Sun is up 4.38%. That's after announcing last week that we will be splitting its gaming and, and uh, hotel divisions. Uh, brought out okay results. Northam, the platinum producer, is on 4.33%. Sapi, the coated paper and cellulose producer, is up 3.98%. Uh, Anglo Platinum up 3.03%. The... Um, the multi-choice group always see the MC group and I'm like trying to remember and the multi-choice never comes in my head also McFries or something it looks like a McDonald's <laughs> the MC group 
uh, is uh, down 3.55%, uh, leading the losers today. MassMart down 3.12%. PNR Foods down 2.72%. Resilience down 2.49%. And Fortress SA down 1.77%. Those are the two property companies that have been accused of um, doing uh, sweetheart shares between each other and massaging each other's share prices. Uh, Although the, uh, the market authority, the JSC's market authority, uh, has exonerated them of initial investigations, there are others that continue, and uh, their declining fortunes are probably related to that particular imbroglio, I suppose you could call it. Okay, so for wider news, the online job search platform Adzuna says South African salaries increased 7% over the past year. Well, so if you if you got less than seven percent, you know you're below the average. If you got more than seven percent, you can give yourself a pat on the back and say, ah, there you see, fool the boss. Uh, IT professionals saw much higher pay rises, with web developers being paid fifteen percent more on average. Uh, finance construction saw wages decrease by two percent. Adzuna analyzed more than 100,000 online job listings and found South African salaries rose 7% in the past year. While food inflation has been relatively tame, that salary hike will not be enough to make up for the 14% increase in electricity price. Eskom's already taking money out of your pocket. Fuel levies, uh, road accident fund taking money out of your pocket. And above inflation hikes for school fees. Oni is taking money out of your pocket. Medical aid membership, the doctor's taking money out of your pocket. For example, some discovery schemes will cost 9% more. Mm. Well, go, go, go and see a hospital inflation, let me tell you, is above 40% uh, on every, every year, above 40%. For hospital groups, the main cause of uh, this corruption in our medical industry. It's amazing, you know, they don't get the kind of flack that Jacob Zuma gets. Um, I'm not like decrying the flack that Jacob Zuma gets. He should be getting even more, as far as I'm concerned. He should be jailed. In fact, I'd like to uh, listen and let's go down there. Electricity and fuel prices, they've been they're up a staggering 13.8% over the past 10 years. Uh, in fact, I think it's uh, cumulative for 400%. In addition, government's decision not to adjust income tax brackets, there's Titumbaweni taking money out of your bucket, bucket, is also making a big dent in salary hikes. Salaries in the IT sector are up more than 10% on average. Uh, specialized skills, particularly web developers, uh, saw 15% increases. A degree in computer science is probably your best bet if you're trying to consider how to make money out of your children. Uh, Java developers who earn on average 582,218 rand, 582, rand per year, I take it that's an annual salary and not a monthly one, According to the online platforms, analysis are also popular, with more than 2,000 positions advertised. But BHP software developers, also in very high demand the year before, only saw salary growth of 2% in the past year. So it's going to depend on what you're going to specialize in if you go into computer science. Engineering, admin and sales jobs will pay hikes between 5 and 10%, while a civil engineer remains one of the top paid positions in South Africa with an average advertised salary of 639,100 rands. There were only around 600 positions advertised. But go into it because there's probably only about 20 people qualified. 
So, so go for it. I mean, uh, they poo-pooing it. South Africa has got a shortage of engineers, believe me, and a shortage of like in experienced engineers with ten-year um, project experience behind them. So you go into civil engineering. Don't listen to the guys saying, "Yeah, there's only six hundred jobs advertised." There's not man. There's not enough civil engineers. Go into civil engineering. Go into plumbing. Go into become an electrician. There's it. You're going to have a job for life. That's my advice to you. Administration positions with an average pay of 327,600 ranked among the lowest paid positions that at Zuna Tract. Receptionists with the lowest salaries in the survey with just 119,543 rands. So not bad. It'll keep the wolf away from the door. Marketing, finance, construction salary increases were below 5%. Finance and construction saw 2% increases uh, according to Zuna. All right. Well, there, Mark Bristow has taken over Barrick Gold, and that has helped negotiations in Tanzania. Now, why don't we just be like the Tanzanians? With so much mining going on in South Africa, how do we know that the mines are in actual fact reporting the true volumes being taken out? Wouldn't it be a great business tactic by a mining company to smuggle its ore out of South Africa? Do they do that? Do South African miners smuggle their metal out of South Africa to avoid paying taxes? I've seen these stories repeatedly crop up in Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, accusing the mining companies of uh, cheating on taxes by smuggling ore or refined metal out of the country. Surely um, it must, you know... If it happens in the rest of Africa, why isn't that happening here? I mean, they're the same mining companies. Why are the mining companies suddenly like sort of, you know, very honest on this side of the Limpopo and on the other side of the Limpopo? They they, they chuck their sheep's clothing away and they go and just rip into the populace. Hmm? Shouldn't we also be doing the similar kind of things that Tanzania is doing? Huh? Is the South African Revenue Service, does it have enough inspectors to ensure that mine revenues are correctly stated? Because you see right now, Barrick Gold is in a major tussle with uh, tax authorities in Tanzania. Uh, they believe that the tax dispute could be resolved by May. That's due to Mark Bristow taking over as the head of Barrick Gold, according to the country's attorney general anyway. Uh, Barrick's uh, subsidiary in that country, Acacia Mining, has been fighting with uh, the Tendare Salon since 2017 when the state handed it a $190 billion tax bill. Wow, a $190 billion tax bill, saying Barrick falsely declared bullion exports. Now look at the size of that. Huh? Bristow was named Barrick Chief Executive Officer in January. In the next month, Barrick reached a settlement with the government. Shares in Acacia rose as much as 4.9% in London, the most since February 20, when Barrick announced the settlement proposal. Barrick owns 63.9% of Acacia and says the plan includes it paying $300 million to resolve outstanding tax claims. Now, the sign of that claim, $190 billion, and the size of the settlement indicates that there is definite smoke coming out there. Hmm, yeah, definite smoke coming out there. $300 million, you don't just hand away $300 million if you've done nothing wrong. You take it to the International Criminal Court. 
You take the International Court of Justice. That's where you go when you get a $190 billion tax bill and you're clean. Anyway, so they paid $300 million to uh, Dar es Salaam, resolving to to resolve outstanding tax claims and the two parties sharing the economic benefits going forward on a 50-50% basis. Hmm? Isn't that bad? That's not bad at all, is it? The government may end up with a much larger share of that in the final deal because now there's also going to be taxes and things that they're also going to have to pay uh, and other revenues and so on. So the government is probably going to end up with between 65 and 70% of that gold mine. Why? You know, like the ANC, they're a bunch of amateurs. Huh? I mean, I don't know, maybe the corporate sector. I, I, I used to say that uh, if the ANC could choose an opposition party, uh, you know, a, a useless rubbish opposition party, they would choose the DA. Because, you know, like, in the DA, like, stands up and like, complains about all of these things. But, like, you know, in terms of mass appeal, it's just not there. Um, uh, and nowadays, you know, ever since the Zuma administration and the shambles that has followed in his wake, you know, the cattle herd boy from, with the standard two from KwaZulu-Natal, who says he did nothing wrong. Yeah, it was a fantastic presidency. It's a bit like, you know, Donald Trump. It's the best presidency the whole world has ever seen. And then the whole United Nations bursts into laughter. Ah, yeah. So why don't we do the same thing? Why don't we start checking up on our gold mines? Are our gold mines, are our platinum mines, our diamond mines, our vanadium mines, our coal mines, our iron ore mines, our manganese mines, our chromium mines, are they correctly and honestly stating their export figures. That is something we really should be investigating here in South Africa. Really. I would urge the government, if it really wants to start making money and recouping a lot of money, start keeping a closer eye on our mining companies because there's no way mining companies are dishonest north of the Limpopo and south of the Limpopo suddenly they're little angels well that's something for you to chew on as we move over to our commercial break uh, we'll be back in just a moment don't go away Sahaba, the voice of Assalamu alaikum welcome back right well continuing with that Tanzanian story uh, Tanzania hasn't just been going after its gold miners, badly, badly behaving barrack. Uh, it has also ordered all mineral producing regions in the country to set up government controlled trading centers by the end of June. And that is specifically to curb illegal exports of gold and other precious minerals. Now, the interesting thing is that these controlled trading centers are not just for the big mines. Tanzania also has a host of tiny, small, little individual miners, small-scale miners. Huh? Why don't we have that in Africa? There's another thing that uh, the ANC can learn from Africa, you know. Instead of burning Africans and telling them to go back home, like the Amabunu used to do during apartheid, what you should rather do is um, ask those African countries for permission to, to cross the Limpopo. Um, you know, um, I must say, you know, I'm sure that uh, I would feel safer walking around Africa nowadays. I'm white. I'm very, very white. I feel safer walking around Africa nowadays than most black South Africans. In fact, most black South Africans that went north of the Limpopo would be hiding the fact that they're from South Africa. 
Yeah, it's a very sad fact that, isn't it? Well, anyway, Tanzania has ordered all mineral-producing regions to set up government-controlled trading centers by the end of June. The trading centers will give small-scale miners direct access to a formal regulated market. They can go there, they can directly trade their gold. At the moment, uh, like, you know, gold buyers and dealers are most, mostly based in Dar es Salaam and major towns. Uh, so if you're out in the sticks and uh, you've just managed to, maybe you've been panning gold, um, maybe you've been digging, and uh, you've got a few grams. Now you must travel 600, 800, 1,000 kilometers in order to go and sell your, your few grams of gold. Uh, it just doesn't make commercial sense. Uh, so what the government has proposed doing, now this is, a, like you can see, this is a government that's like in touch with its realities. It's in touch with its people. And uh, it makes decisions and it makes them clearly. A bit like we saw New Zealand doing in the wake of the shooting on Friday. Um, according to Prime Minister Kasima Majaliwa, all mineral producing regions should set up the trading centers as soon as possible to serve small miners. Uh, a statement from the Prime Minister's office said the first mineral trading centers was inaugurated in the northwestern town of Gaeta on Sunday, close to the country's biggest gold mine owned by Anglo Gold Ashanti. Uh, the Gaeta Center will serve as a model for others. Adding uh, centers are aimed at controlling smuggling of gold and other minerals. Now, 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 just think about uh, how many of uh, what do they call the uh, the 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 Spaza mine gold miners here in South Africa. Um, in, in fact, you know, I've heard some really chilling stories about what's going on underground in our old gold mines. Um, even slave labor, Nigerians abducting people to work as slaves underground. Yeah, in South Africa. Yeah, so now you, you, you've you got these uh, um, these banded gold miners now in, in the dirt, old, old mine workings and so on. Uh, w wouldn't it be a good thing for the government to open up uh, a similar kind of thing for small-time small miners? Small-scale miners produce around 20 tons of gold a year in Tanzania. So it's not just like small change. There are a lot of people who are involved in it. But an estimated 90% of the output is illegally exported, according to a report by the Parliamentary Committee. Tanzania is South Africa's fourth biggest gold producer. So, um, South Africa is, of course, the biggest one. Ghana and Mali are the second and third biggest. Tanzania exported $1.549 billion worth of gold last year. Uh, President John Magufuli who took office uh, late 2015, is pushing for more revenues from the mining sector, which is a relatively small contributor to the national output. Uh, the government passed laws that the industry complained would be costly and onerous in 2017. Among other things, uh, they've hiked taxes on mineral exports, mandated a higher government stake for some mines, and forced the construction of local smelters. Uh, a move that some companies said was uneconomic. But what it does do is it makes it impossible for you then to kind of like say that your ore is, um, that uh, you, you can hide stuff in your refined ore. You see, uh, ore, like, you know, um, if you export ore, you don't actually know what uh, the concentration of, uh, of the metal is in the ore. The real value of that ore is only determined once it is smelted. And uh, exactly the same thing goes uh, with uh, with diamonds. Um, really, I must uh, revisit the diamond issue once again. Uh, been many changes in the, in the diamond sector. 
One little interesting thing I just want to say about diamonds is that it's probably the most important fact about diamonds that the world doesn't know. Uh, the second most important fact is that the Oppenheimers, uh, Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, was um, was smuggling diamonds uh, into Nazi Germany during uh, World War Two. Yeah, that's what Ernest Oppenheimer did. He was smuggling diamonds for Hitler. Yeah, yeah. Ernest Oppenheimer, Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, or maybe it was his son Harry. Well, they were probably working together. Uh, they were smuggling diamonds to Hitler during World War Two. Yeah, that's the second most important fact about uh, diamonds that the world probably doesn't know. The most important fact about diamonds is that diamonds could bring to a halt the world's arms and oil industries overnight. Mm, yeah, you didn't know that. Yeah, you didn't know that. How is that possible, you would say? Well, you see, the only thing that cuts armor plate is industrial diamonds. The only thing that you can put into the drill bits of uh, deep oil wells, particularly off-sea oil wells, uh, you know, three, 4,000 feet, in fact, I think it's meters below the surface uh, to, to, to access uh, the oil beds, uh, you need diamonds, industrial diamonds. Uh, during World War II, the only source of industrial diamonds in the world was De Beers. And yet for the entire length of World War II, Hitler was producing his super weapons. He was producing his fear tiger tanks, his V1 and V2 rockets, his Messerschmitt 326s and his Spandau machine guns and his Heinkel Heinkel bombers uh, and all of those ridiculous machines that he thought he was going to be able to use to rule the world. And all through that time, he was cutting his armor plate because on all of those machines you needed armor plate. Every single one of those. For rifles, for, you know, all kinds of weapons. Anti-aircraft guns, 88mm anti-aircraft guns, 60mm, 80mm mortars. You need armor plates. And the only thing that can cut armor plate is industrial diamonds. And you need a lot of industrial diamonds to keep that kind of industrial output up, that kind of like critical mass. And uh, Nazi war production at the end of World War II, according to Albert Speer, who was uh, Hitler's chief architect and overseeing the war program, uh, was at 85%. Well, you know, you know, you get guys and you get accountants, I mean, look at Steinhoff. Uh, 85%, uh, according to Albert Speer in uh, 1945, Nazi war production. And there's no ways it could have been at even 1% if they had had no industrial diamonds. But they got all the industrial diamonds they wanted. And at that stage in the world, as I say, the only source of industrial diamonds on such a scale was De Beers, headed up by Ernest Oppenheimer and Harry Oppenheimer. Mm. So there you go. There's a few interesting uh, facts about the diamonds that you didn't know. And I really think we need to start uh, uh, revisiting uh, the diamond issue. 60% of all the world's diamonds are polished and cut in Nazi Israel. Did you know that? Yeah, Nazi Israel is the main source of all of those. And how many, how many, how many um, diamond mines does Nazi Israel have? None. A very important source 
of uh, revenue for killing Palestinians, for developing nuclear bombs, apartheid Israel. Uh, anyway, getting back to Tanzania, President John Magufuli, who took office in late 2015, is pushing for more revenues from the mining sector. And uh, it looks as though he's going to get it. It looks as though he's got good ideas. He's also ordered his central bank to start buying the country's gold, to curb smuggling and to build reserves to stabilize the local currency. Now, you see, he has another issue. Oh, we are speaking about the Reserve Bank recently, nationalization of the Reserve Bank. And, of course, you, you get all the, all the corporate dogs come crawling out of the woodwork and say, no, no, but you've got to maintain independence of the Reserve Bank. But our Reserve Bank has never, ever been, in, uh, been independent. Uh, and I've always said that, in actual fact, our Reserve Bank should be ensuring that all mineral sales out of South Africa go through the Reserve Bank. And then those minerals are sold on and supplied to the international markets according to the South Africa's national interest. Now, you see, when this doesn't happen, you get a situation like you had with Anglo Gold uh, back in 1998 uh, Anglo Gold started forward sales. Now, we're told that these forward sales were to try and smooth out any, like, you know, future rises and falls in the gold price. In those days, like, you know, the gold price used to vacillate between 260 and $280 an ounce. Uh, and it had been stuck in the doldrums since the 1979 gold boom. And, uh, and uh, Anglo-American suddenly started selling its, doing forward sales in gold. Okay, we're going to lock in the price for the gold price. And then they went and did a silly thing. Well, you know, we, we, we'll discuss the silliness of it a little bit later. I know, I promised, I promised I would be doing that, um, the, the, um, the, Steinhoff, the Steinhoff story. Um, but it's a very complicated story, the Steinhoff story. Uh, and I, I really like this gold story. Um, so please forgive me. Uh, tomorrow, maybe a little bit late in the show, just before the end, we'll do the Steinhoff, a little bit of the Steinhoff story about what they said about the PWC report. But um, gold, where we're gold. Um, we're talking gold. Mm, now I'm starting to wonder a little bit. Um, yeah, we're the Reserve Bank, the South African Reserve Bank, taking all the gold. Oh, yes, Anglo-American, their forward sales. Suddenly they did forward sales for 10 years. They locked in their prices for 10 years. And that was just before the gold price went through the roof. Now you can say, oh, well, you know, that's a terrible thing. Anglo-American shouldn't have done that. It was a stupid move to lock in your forward sales for 10 years. But, you know, looking at the, uh, the, uh, the current market price and getting a higher price than that, you know, Anglo-American was able to argue that they did it seriously, like out of the fiduciary interests of the company. And as a result, Anglo-American went through that massive gold boom, gold price boom, and saw nothing. But that's got nothing. That doesn't matter. I don't care if Anglo-American goes bankrupt. Sorry, I'm sorry to say. Um, hmm. Um, Mr. Kutifani probably doesn't like that. Uh, he's got an Indian shareholder there. His name I can't remember right now. Uh, I haven't seen him for a while. Uh, the Invisible Gold, uh, Anglo Gold Chairman. Probably been beaten by Mr. Kutifani. who looks like a typically robust miner. 
Um, Anglo-American sold forward its gold for the next 10 years and locked in a price of around about like $380, which was like $100 above the prevailing price at the time. So it was fine for about a year, but then after two years, the price started going up. And uh, so for the next decade, when the high gold prices were in, Anglo-American didn't see any benefits from that. Uh, and that doesn't matter. As a result of that, can you imagine, can you imagine the huge, big, uh, the huge, big losses that our tax man made as a result of all of Anglo-Americans gold being sold at $380 when the, when the price had gone through $950, had gone through $1,000. An Anglo-American is selling its gold at $380 an ounce. Can you imagine the loss to the fiscus, to the tax man? Um, okay, uh, Suhail, uh, alhamdulillah, Suhail, jazakumullah for sending us that message. Uh, you've asked us to speak about uh, Julius Malema's call for the nationalization of mines in South Africa. Uh, sure. Um, I, I don't think we should nationalize mines in South Africa. I don't think a government should be in charge of such a complex uh, operation. We don't need to nationalize the mines. We just need to nationalize the process, the nationalize the process of mineral sales. We put all the mineral sales through the South African Reserve Bank. And as a result of that, they won't be able to smuggle money uh, all out of the country. They won't be able to get into a nice little deal. Now, I'm not saying Anglo-American did that, but I mean, I'd be really, I'd, I'd fall off my chair if they didn't. But uh, but maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Uh, you get into a deal with a bullion, a nice bullion bank, and you say, okay, you know, uh, for our next projects going ahead, we're going to be wanting to buy a whole lot of mines in all of these different countries. We're going to make you our partner bank, and uh, as a result of that, uh, you're going to give us great interest rates. You're going to give us easy capital uh, in exchange for us selling you our gold at $380 a fine ounce for the next 10 years. That means for the next 30 years, you're going to give us loans at prime minus 15%. You know, that's how you do the thing. That's how Templeton Asset Management and, um, and uh, Netcoin Investment Bank uh, made billions of rands out of the Reserve Bank having to pay back uh, the apartheid hit squad's uh, slush fund which was uh, expressed in the form of the Reserve Bank's net open forward position. So now you see our Reserve Bank has been in a very dirty company for a very long time, and something needs to be done. It's just that I'm not really sure if the ANC is, the, uh, is actually the, the party that's capable of doing it. We've seen what they've done with ESCOM. We've seen what they've done. We've seen what they've done. We've seen what they've done. Um, but, uh, you know what? We need to get rid of the whole political party system and replace it with a clan system. Um, replace companies with uh, family businesses. Uh, get rid of limited liability in South Africa completely. So you don't have political parties. You don't have soccer clubs. You don't have Anglo-American. You don't have you don't have De Beers. Uh, we need. We seriously need to do that, but we're not going to do it by nationalizing the mines. Leave the operational efficiencies to the experts and the engineers and the guys that know how to do it. Leave it up to the safety to the mine inspectors and the trade unions. 
But when it comes to sales, that's where we step in. And we don't nationalize the ore. We don't give America or Britain or France an excuse to come and bomb the big Nazi Johannesburg. We don't do that. We don't nationalize. We don't nationalize. There's no need for that. We just insist that all mineral sales must go through the Reserve Bank, just like Tanzanians do now. Now, you don't see anyone going along and saying, we go, we're going to blow a, 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 this interference in the free market and the nationalizing private property, and we must go and protect the private property of our citizens and our corporations. That's what Britain and America do. Yeah, that's what they do. So we don't want to nationalize. We don't want to steal. Um, we say, okay, we've, we've already got them tied up in a nice enough knots, what's with the mining charter and so on. In fact, we don't have them tied up in enough knots with the mining charter. I find it, I find it horribly reprehensible. Horribly reprehensible. I mean, is that English? Anyway, it doesn't matter. I find it horribly reprehensible. <laughs> it is on this show. I find it horribly reprehensible. Reprehensible. Well, no, no, you see, now I'm really getting confused with my English. Um, that uh, empowerment is a matter of uh, a company selling shares to a black economic empowerment company and then buying them back. You can buy them back two seconds later and you're now empowered forever. That's not empowerment, but you can do that under the mining charter, and I find that shocking. And uh, only only sellouts could have put together an idea like that. Uh, but anyway, if we nationalize the gold mines, it's just going to be a mess. It's just going to be a mess. Leave the mining to the experts, but leave the mine sales to our experts. They're very easily controlled. You know, there's only a certain ports that you can export through. Uh, so it's not going to be difficult to keep track of the exports. And well, although I, it would seem that uh, maybe there is trouble with the exports because uh, look what Tanzania is doing. You never have South Africa going on about this. And, and we are still exporting rough diamonds out of South Africa. That should have been put an end to long, long time ago. Uh, a country, that, in fact, it's a form of smuggling because, you, you know, it's just a stone on the side of the road, a rough diamond. It's just a stone. I mean, it just looks like a stone. Most rough diamonds don't even look like diamonds. Some of them, most of them are not even transparent. You've got to go and you've got to cut them off and you've got to shine them up and make them look very pretty. Uh, and only then, only after that process, do you know how much a diamond is worth. So... All rough diamond sale exports should be banned across the whole of Africa, and then your blood diamond industry comes to an end. Suddenly you don't need the Kimberley process. I mean, the Kimberley process. We put in the, we're putting uh, De Beers, the same company that sold Hitler his, his industrial diamonds. We put in De Beers in charge of the Kimberley process. We put in De Beers in charge of managing the blood diamond process. I mean, that is, that is disgusting. That is truly horrible. Um, so, yeah, we should ban rough diamond sales and all exports out of South Africa. All refinering and all, all should be done here. Beneficiation. Um, and so we just nationalize the sales process. You see, we nationalize the sales process. If you nationalize processes, people can't say that you're stealing property. A process is not the same as property. 
And then we control the diamond sales and the mineral sales out of South Africa. And then we have a very clear idea of how much is being sold. And then we cut down on the smuggling. We cut down on the blood diamonds. We cut down on a whole host of issues just by nationalizing the sales process. If a, if a mining company has had a really good year in terms of production and then you say to them, I'm sorry, but we, uh, we're not going to sell your stuff. We are going to keep them in here because the RAND has reached a certain level. And if we sell these right now, well, then it's not going to be good for the good of the country. They can't argue against that. They can't argue against that. And you haven't had to go through complicated procedures and been sued in court because you've stolen private property or anything like that. You don't have to well, you don't even have to change the constitution, nothing. That's it. Intervention by the Reserve Bank. Nationalize the Reserve Bank. Uh, currently the Reserve Bank is owned by the big banks in South Africa. And of course we all know that the big banks <coughs> in South Africa are almost overwhelmingly British owned. Yeah, you've got Old Mutual, which is a British company. Its primary domicile is in Britain. Uh, you've got First National Bank, which is in actual fact a South African bank. Uh, although it used to be Barclays Bank. Uh, which is a British bank. But British bank Barclays has now bought ABSA, ABSAG as it is called on the JSE. Uh, those are its initials on the JSE. Uh, ABSAG, ABSAG, which was uh, formerly started as Volkskas Bank, which was a savings uh, scheme for poor whites in the 1930s. That's where ABSA came out of. Uh, ABSA, which was a poor white Africana savings scheme in the 1930s, is now a British bank. Um, Nedbank is uh, owned by Old Mutual, which is a British bank. Now, what other bank is there? Standard. There's it. Standard is like a. I, I, I like Standard Bank simply because they teamed up with the Chinese instead of the British. I think that's a very smart move. I, I think it was uh, what is that? Maria Jacob Maria, the former former chief executive. Uh, I walked into the Standard Bank building uh, a few weeks ago. And I told the security guard here, yeah, last time I was here, Jacob Maria was still the chief executive. He said, yeah, you've been gone a long time, eh? Yeah, how the years fly. Uh, my brother has got a few restaurants in that building. Uh, good luck to his arm. Uh, he's actually he's providing halal food. He's not a Muslim himself, but uh, he's got, you know, the whole organization. His son, the whole production line, his son approved and everything. Uh, that's very nice, I must say. I've got a non-Muslim brother who's producing halal food. May Allah bless him with his diet. Uh, so, yeah, I reckon that that's what we should be doing in South Africa. We should nationalize the mine process. Don't nationalize the mines. That's just going to cause all kinds of trouble. And uh, Julius Malema, he's just, uh, he's, he's been bought out by the, by the same guy that bought out the ANC. Didn't you see those pictures of him? Lord something, Smith or what, idiot, uh, in London, pictures of Julius Malema. Yeah, it's amazing when they go across to London now. Um, our revolutionaries turn a very strange, uh, whiter shade of pale. Um, yeah, they like to sit in uh, Paris cafe, roadside restaurants and sip uh, brandy and uh, talk about their struggle in Africa. But when they get back over here, well, ah, that's very sad. It was one of the biggest cons. It was a very good way of... Um, of ending off the evening with a pretty lady, I was told by many activists who returned. I knew a lot of them. Uh, okay, so uh, that's uh, South Africa today. Uh, what else have we got? News 24. Um, so Tanzania has all, 
open up a whole lot of uh, he's going to be opening up a whole lot of small gold traders and mineral traders and all of his mineral trails are going to be mineral trades are going to actually have to be done at source that's a really wonderful thing it's going to create employment there are going to be all kinds of people getting involved in that kind of thing and it's going to open up stimulate uh, economic activities all around the country I mean, I think it really is an exciting move by Tanzania, and it's something that we should be learning from. If only black South Africans could venture into Africa safely, knowing that the black South Af- the black Af- the Africans would call them my brother. Nowadays they don't. Black Africans are not safe in Africa. How about that? Isn't that strange? And why South Africans can go there? <laughs> It's uh, a very strange. It's a very strange thing indeed. Ascendus Wealth, Ascendus Health brought out its results today. They the um, uh, the health supplements. Uh, I think that's the best way to describe them. The health supplements uh, manufacturer. Also, like you know, how many of these supplements as to whether or not they're real or not. I don't know what percentage of Ascendus Health's products have got that tiny. I mean, I was I was, I was reading on the, on the on the back of one of their little capsules last night. The, the the writing was uh, shorter than a millimeter high. The X height was like smaller than a millimeter. It was like getting into microns. Luckily, I've got, um, I don't know, I've got something happening in my, my, my right eye. Uh, what, what they call it. Um, you get those kind of like milky kind of growth occurring there. I've got one in my right eye. Uh, which means that I, if, I, if I hold the page like two centimeters away from my head, I can actually see things in perfect detail. And that was the only, re- that was the only reason I was able to read the, 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 the label on the Ascendus Health bottle. Uh, and it said that uh, this product has not been tested uh, by medical um, authorities, uh, either in terms of use or a whole lot of other kind of complicated little things. But anyway, Ascendus Health does these things um, as people have moved away from, like, you know, the scientific uh, log jam of control of, uh, of pharmaceuticals. Uh, so these uh, alternative health remedies have come to the market and Ascendus Wealth has been doing very well. Although share price dropped today, it was the biggest lose on the JSE today. Main reason being because it decided not to issue a uh, a dividend. As soon as you do that on the JSE, it's amazing. Because you get people who will get in before you bring out your results and they buy your shares just so that they can get the dividend. And then after you've declared the dividend, they sell the shares and they take the dividend money. Now that is not halal. You're not supposed to be investing in companies like that. Uh, but of course... Uh, 90% of the traders on the JSC are doing that kind of thing. Um, <clears throat> and maybe one day if you're in a tight spot, you'll try it out yourself. Uh, just don't blame me. Don't dev Kiyama. Don't say to Allah, but Alameen Templeton said I should do this. I told you it was haram. Okay? All right. Well, anyway, uh, that's enough news for today. Jazakamallah for joining us. I hope whatever trading activity, I make dua that whatever trading activity you got up today has been profitable and above all halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.